you're there to compete at the end of the day and sometimes sometimes that means backing it off sometimes it means sleeping in sometimes it means you know take taking a week off um, is the best approach to get the most out of yourself come race day Hey everybody, welcome back to episode two of the Pillar Performance Podcast. I'm Damo um, and I'll be your host today. Thank you for listening again. Pillar Performance Show is a show that we've tried to create to connect athletes and experts in the field um, across endurance sports, namely focusing on triathlon running and cycling. What we plan to do with this podcast, we want to unpack the stories and the learnings um, to educate around the, the pillars of micronutrition, but also other elements of, of, of endurance sports and the trending topics and, and obviously the, the companies and the brands and the athletes that are leading the way in the space. One of the guests that I would love and, and have been very looking forward to introducing, I mean, I feel like many of our, our audience customers and listeners already know this person very well but today i want to dial in on two main things i want to introduce this person as as a person as her role in what she does here with our company um, as an expert and leader in in performance nutrition but also want to start right back at the beginning of her journey because her journey was very much in in the realm of, of professional sport so without further ado i would really it's my pleasure to introduce everyone to our resident dietitian here Pip Taylor. So, Pip, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you. Always love to have a chat. I know it's a bit different, isn't it? It's actually it's it's strange that it's not one of the one of our live shows that we've done previously. But hopefully, look, we're still finding our way with this podcast, Pip, and um, look this new this new platform. I'm still learning as well, and I think everyone everyone enjoys a new platform and understands that there'll be a few hiccups along the way. So, I just want to dive straight into it, Pip, because I know you and I are both very busy, and I think people are probably sick of me talking, but. I want to start right at the beginning, Pip. I don't think we've had a great opportunity to even tell your story. I think everyone knows you about about what you're doing now in life and, and your position in performance and nutrition globally. But can you start us right from the beginning? How did how did you get into it and what was your journey as, as an athlete? Yeah, well, I guess sport has always been part of my life. I grew up as a swimmer, doing little A's, um, into, into quite a few different sports at school. Um, but it was really towards the end of my time in high school that, you know, I, th- I think by about that age, you realize, you, you know, if you're going to make it as a swimmer or not. Um, and I love training. I love turning up to training. I was, I was swimming pretty well. You know, I'd go to, I'd go to nationals. I was on state teams, but you know, if you're going to really make it or not. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't going to make it as a, as a top level swimmer. Um, I had, I had come through athletics, little athletics with a lot of success. You know, I'd won, I probably won state every year. I'd won nationals, uh, 1,500 metres, 800 metres. They were my events. But I, but I also had a lot of problems as a very young runner. I was, I was injured a lot and, and probably still don't quite understand some of those, some of those injuries. Um, but it meant that I felt a little bit, a little bit hesitant or a little bit limited on that path as well but I knew that I had a desire to remain in sport I felt like that I could be half good at something so I actually went down and did some some testing at Australian Institute of Sport and it it, it, it just tests capabilities and things that you things that you're good at things that you're not so good at um, it certainly showed that I probably wasn't going to be you know, a jumper or a sprinter. Um, I didn't have 
the greatest hand-eye coordination, so ball sports probably weren't my thing. And and triathlon came out as not the top sport, but but one that was in there that certainly interested me a lot. I very naively thought, you know, I can swim, I can run, can't be that difficult. And and it really went from there. I I was put in in contact with the right contacts for the sport, and my journey started really pretty quickly. I had a um, within a couple of weeks a, a bike from the out of the trading post at the time, which is I think I don't even think that exists anymore. It's probably equivalent of Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> Well, should I say maybe for our, from for some of our American audience, mate, is that like I imagine it's like Craigslist, trading yeah, post. Exactly. I mean, you and I yeah. know what that is. It's a very Australian, it's a very Australian thing, but I think it's a bit like Craigslist, isn't it? It's exactly, yep. And I bought a very secondhand bike. Um, I knew absolutely nothing about bikes at the time. I think it cost eight hundred dollars, which you know, for me, I thought, oh, that's that's quite a bit of money, isn't it? Again, very naively, um, knowing now how much bikes cost and that was actually the first race that I um the first bike that I used in my first year as a professional athlete um because I very quickly I think I got my pro license in my second race um very quickly into the deep end about my fourth or fifth race I was racing in what was at the time the F1 one summer series which is the televised um, series short races in Australia um, with with some of the top triathletes not just from Australia but across the world so it was very much baptism by fire but it was also that was the start of what was to become um, probably 12 or more years close to 15 years actually um, racing and, and racing across the world and in some of the best races and some of the best years of my life and did you ever did you ever get on a bike as a, as a kid or did you did you do no. you know in terms of the no it was I mean it's interesting right? I, I hear so many times when people are diving into triathlon there's always that one one of the third discipline is is always the one I mean predominantly I hear I mean and tell me if I'm wrong is it, it's it's often the swim right it's often people have a background in cycling or run and swim is the third one that comes across but it's interesting that you had you know you have the start and the finish but you had to kind of master the master the middle but did you you'd never had any background in cycling no background whatsoever you know aside from a kid with your with your bike around the neighborhood um, which you know that that's when you're a very young kid um, so no, I hadn't. I probably hadn't been on a bike for a couple of years. Um, so that was that was really new to me. Um, and you know, in, in some ways, in some ways, parts of it are possibly the easiest of the three to pick up. Um, in other ways, it's it, it is a big challenge. You know, the, the skill component of of being on bikes, being comfortable on bikes, being comfortable around other people on bikes, um, is really really important, particularly in the shorter course racing. And why 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 the shorter course as opposed to the longer course, and purely the safety element of having the drafting rules in you know there's there's obviously more skill involved in the shorter course and, and maneuvering around the track is that and is like as a young triathlete how how much of your focus or does your training go into with your coaches do they do they play specifics on on that you know maneuvering around the course 
Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think that that's, you know, nowadays you see some of the younger athletes coming through and that's, it is a big focus um, and the skill work that they do. And, you know, because in those shorter, those shorter races, seconds, not even seconds can make a lot of difference. And you see that in and out of transitions, for instance, you know, even the ability to jump on your bike smoothly and quickly um, can make or break people getting into packs or not getting on packs. Whereas when you extrapolate that over the much longer distance of Ironman, you know, you've got a long time out there to make up that up. So those, those, those really fine skills um, and being comfortable around other people on bikes are, are not quite as critical. And did you, uh, I mean, know, knowing you as a person, um, I imagine I probably know the answer to this question, but I, I, I'm, I think for those out there, obviously when, when you decide to do something, I know you go all in on it. Um, and so when you made that decision to go over to triathlon, how, you know, tell me about the process of going going all in from, you know, being all in on, on um, athletics and swimming. How deeply did you dive straight into triathlon in terms of did you manipulate your training immediately to be triathlon focused or were you still trying to live and, you know, li- live the dream of swimming and, and potentially running in the Olympics with while also trying to upskill yourself a little bit on, on the bike or did you just say, no, triathlon's where I need to go and I'm going to change my whole training program to now become, you know, be dialed in in terms of what's required from triathlon? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, I had reached the point where while I still loved swimming and, and running training, it, it wasn't going anywhere as in, you know, career wise or, or, or getting to that next level. Um, so triathlon really provided that opportunity and it was, it was all in. And, and that's not just from a training perspective as well. It was very quickly from um, entire lifestyle perspective, including my study. So I was, you know, I first started triathlon, I was in my first year of university. Um, and at that stage I was, I was studying medical science. Um, and because my, you know, triathlon career and opportunities took off pretty quickly, that can, that comes with travel. Um, and very quickly some significant overseas travel as well. Um, so for me, and, and this goes back, you know, before online learning was really common and, and the standard way to learn, um, it, it meant a, a shift for me, including shifting universities, shifting degrees slightly to accommodate that, um, while, while, still, while still doing, you know, because for me, learning and working has always been in, important to have going concurrently to that. Um, but it, yeah, it did. It shifted everything. So talk to me. You, you said obviously the opportunities came really quickly. You, you obviously found your groove in triathlon. How far, like break that down a little bit for me. How, how fast did the opportunities come? What was the pathway like to, yeah, I mean, to, to saying, look, I'm going to be doing this full time now. How, how quickly did that happen? And, and what was that journey like from race one through to, you know, a, a, long, a long-term career in triathlon? How, did, how quickly was that process? Um, it, it almost, it almost came so quickly that it was unplanned. So, you know, the, the first, the first race I did, I thought this, this could be fun. I could hate it. Who knows? Um, did my first race, um, second race, I qualified for my pro license. Um, again, I didn't really actually understand what that meant. 
Um, but it meant that from then on I was racing professionally. So I've only ever done one race as, as, as an amateur or age grouper. Um, and I think... And what race, what, race, Pip, what race was that? I'm keen that to know what race license? was the very first one. I think my very first one no, was... No, what was your... Give me the first two races you did. <laughs> my first race, I'm pretty sure, was at Woolgoolga, um, which, was, which was at the time a, a really good... Um, a really good, solid race on the circuit. Um, it was... I think it was a, a 130 and 8 maybe, that race. And then my second race was one of the, the state series events out at, um, out at Penrith, I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's where it was. Um, but by my, very soon after that, I got invited to, to try out for the, um, the F1 series, the one summer series it was that year, which was the televised summer series, um, some of the best triathletes from Australia, but also the world that were invited in. Um, and from there, I, I qualified for that event. So I, I do remember, I do remember turning up, still practicing the very morning of the first race over at Cronulla, still practicing jumping on my bike, um, still, still practicing some of those those little transition elements, um, but I did really well. So that was the first round of that series, and 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 again, I turned up. I still didn't know the sport. I didn't know the people in the sport. I wouldn't have even called myself a fan of the sport. So I was, and and this, in some ways, sounds quite bad. But I was on the start line with people who had girls who had won world champs. Um, or they had, you know, they, they were really highly decorated athletes and I had no idea who they were, absolutely no idea. Um, and in many ways that worked to my advantage because I just turned up this naive little kid. The swim for that event was actually in a pool. So the series had a, it was a blow-up pool, a 25-metre pool that they would set up um, in, these, in these, as part of the event. And they circuit, um, which suited me. I came, I'd come from that background, so you know, I'd lead out the swim, just and just go for it, go for it on the bike, go for it on the run. And because I had no no pre preconceived notions around, you know, these girls really should be ahead of me. Um, you're just able to race and race quite freely. Um, and it was really only after that 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 first race and and I had a bit of media attention and they they came to um to speak to me and they you know they were asking how many races have you done and I was able to count them on one hand um which was which was a little bit of a shock at that time but that that was how quickly that I I just kind of got into the sport and and then you're on your way you know you're qualifying for um for junior world championships and then senior world championship teams and um, it just quickly snowballs um, as to what you're doing and which which then attracts sponsors as well and support and you're part of um, institute teams and um, yeah it kind of it kind of plans itself without you really thinking about it and so 
to, to round that up then, how, how long was your how long was your professional career then? How, how long, you know, you, you obviously got into the professional ranks almost, let's call it instantly. Where did the journey take you? What was, give me the length of the time and maybe, you know, the, the two major highlights from there might have been race result or, or race location um, or, or completely other. Um, so as part of that journey, what, what are the, some of the, what are the two key highlights that you can really draw in on? That's a hard question. And, and look, to answer your first question, I mean, uh, my first race was 99. Um, career really kicked off 2000, I guess. Um, and right through until um, when I came back and, and started a family. And I, I did I did race a couple of races in between having kids, but, but at a much, you know, lower um, it wasn't my focus by that point. It wasn't. It wasn't my job. It wasn't my focus. So that, you know, that's that's really kind of a twelve year, twelve year solid stretch. And I've I've raced the spectrum from those those very short races, um, and the Olympic focused events, and then through to the uh, call it more the US. Um, the US style circuit and, and half Ironmans. Never raced an Ironman, um, but but certainly the non-drafting ones. Highlights. I, I, I find it I find it hard. Look, I I would put my hand up and say I don't feel I ever got um, as far in my career as what I think I could have um, or should have, and and. And with a bit of hindsight, with a bit of maturity about things that I think that I did wrong um, in my career, including overtraining. That, that for me, that's probably the biggest one, um, and and some injury management as well. Um, but I think I think the highlights for me is is really, you know, looking. I never expected to have a career to make money from the sport to have 12 years of, of traveling the world, um, going to different places, meeting different people. That was, that was never even on my radar when I first heard the word triathlon. So for me, looking back, it's, I'm, I'm quite proud of, of that fact as well and to make it part of, part of my life and, and part of who I am. Um, and, you know, I, I, still had, I still had some decent level success on there. Um, won and podium that some world cups i've won some some of the big us races that you know some, some of those races are, are incredible um but yeah it was uh it's I, I feel i feel privileged actually to have those 12 years yeah i mean and and, and for those of you out there like pip and i have, have spoken before but we, we we share a few similar regrets in our professional i mean i i was without a doubt the one of the biggest you know yeah, I was an overtrainer um, and poorly managed a lot of serious injuries in my career. And Pip and I have spoken about that. And maybe Pip, oh, look, I will while I've got you on this section of the podcast. Maybe maybe give a little bit of anecdote out there to young triathletes, young endurance athletes, because you know we we get told you and I both got told in our careers to slow down and listen to our bodies, and we and we chose not to to our detriment. Um, but what would you know? What's some advice we could, you could give to, to young triathletes coming through and even maybe potentially young little athletics um, competitors as well? As you said, you were, you were pretty injured there and I imagine it's something that every young athlete goes through in endurance sports. But, you know, what's, what's that advice to, to athletes wanting to get into triathlon and trying to manage injuries and training 
when all the content is telling them to just hours on training, how many kilometers per week. And there's this, you know, like there's, there's just such a, a push to just train and train and train. What's your bit of, what's your bit of anecdote on that? Yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a really difficult one. And, and I think it's, it's really difficult when you're in that bubble, when you're, when you're, when you're really in that, um, in that moment. But when you, when you take a step out, it becomes really obvious. It becomes really obvious that, you know, at the end of the day, we, you're actually there to compete. You're not there to train. Um, and it becomes so easy, as you said, to get wrapped up in chasing those, those daily numbers or get wrapped up in, yeah, but this is what my training program feels, says, even though I feel so tired or I can, I can feel these levels of fatigue, um, if I if I don't do what my training program says, then you know have I failed that in some regard? Um, so I think there's always a, a little bit of taking that step back and going acknowledging that you're actually what you what you do on a day to day basis does matter, but that's not where the that's not what you're there for. You you're there to compete at the end of the day. Um, and sometimes, sometimes that means backing it off. Sometimes it means sleeping in. Sometimes it means, you know, take, taking a week off, um, is the best approach to get the most out of yourself come race day. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's one of those ones where people, sometimes you do have to, you do have to have and go through a little bit of yourself to realize that there's, there's advice out there, but, um, you know, from my, my personal experience, really listen to your body is probably one of those, one of the biggest key feedbacks I can give to anyone. Pip, we'll segue there. Professional career, as you said, you were studying medical science. Assumably there was an interest then in physiology, in some level of science and nutrition, Tell us how that transition went from professional athlete into obviously professional life then as a performance dietitian. Talk us through that journey. Yeah, there's always, for me, there's always been an interest in, um, in human body, physiology, how things work. My, my mom is, is a GP, she's a doctor. And, you know, so I grew up, there's medical magazines sitting at the table. So <laughs> reading and, and looking at those pictures, um, there, there was always that interest there. And then for me as well, then as, as an athlete, there was that connection between what I'm doing, how I'm feeling, not just to, to what I'm eating, but, but what, else, what else I'm doing. And I, and I always like connecting those dots. And that, and that really just it kind of narrowed a little bit into nutrition. Again, I'd always eaten well, grown up in a, in a family of good cooks, had good produce around us. And for me as an athlete, it was, it was, it was really obvious and strong connections between how I felt, how I recovered, how I was sleeping, and, and the realization that all of those little pieces did make real tangible differences. And that just sparked a real interest in wanting to know more, to understand more, and I formalized those, those studies and, and degrees, and, and a desire as well to communicate that to others or, or educate others. It's still surprising to me, either the lack of, of knowledge or understanding that, that's out there amongst athletes and non-athletes, and then on the flip side, the, the amount of confusion, there's, there's almost so much in information and so much conflicting information that, that it can become quite complex as well. When in reality, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty simple. It's 
food, food is pretty simple. So there's that desire to, to be able to cut through that and make, make it simple for people and particularly for other athletes. Absolutely. And we, we, we talk a lot internally here at Pillar, but it's, it's one of those things there that the market of new performance nutrition is saturated at all categories from micro right through to macro and everything in between. But with that, there has been a saturation in education to the point where there has been miseducation around this entire category, which is, is, is really difficult then to, to try and break through for an athlete to work out which education is attached to a product, which are both misleading in terms of what you actually need as a person. And sometimes, as you said, you, we try and keep it, keep it simple, stupid, and, and just try and dial it right back in. And we talk often about it being a one size fits one. And I know that's your process with like, when, when, when you started obviously doing, did you start your journey in nutrition doing one-on-one? Like, do you, did you do one-on-one clinics? Did you go straight? Cause obviously you've spent a lot of time in the team space. And I kind of want to give me your feedback on your time as a one-on-one clinician and how that looks when you're dealing with athletes on an individual basis, how you do that, and then how you translate that into a team environment. And you're dealing with some of the biggest AFL teams and and professional teams here in Australia now, and you you have to program for potentially 50 people if if you look at the entire squad, but then also break that down on an individual basis without the amount of hours in a week to do it. So... Talk to me about how you transition that and how that learning was for you in that process. Because I imagine with one dietitian, and I know a lot of the big the big teams in the US and in Europe as well still operate with only one dietitian for a huge amount of very, very important clients. Let's say if we're talking about some of these European football teams, they um, there's a lot of money sitting in that locker room. It's interesting that there's still only a certain amount of hours in a week given to nutrition. Uh, I actually couldn't agree more on that point. And it... it, it... It blows my mind almost on a daily basis that we know nutrition underpins absolutely every element of performance. So we know that, you know, going into the gym, you're doing your strength and conditioning programming, you're doing your your fitness programming, your sleep, we know how important sleep is in terms of recovery. All of those different elements there's a nutrition component that underpins all of them. And without getting that right, you're never going to maximize any of these other elements of performance. So it still still blows my mind that nutrition in some programs is seen either as a a tick box exercise or an optional um, extra nice to have, or it's just, you know, it's it's really downplayed in its importance. I think there's in in some sports and organisations there's still a real lack of maturity about how it becomes a much more integral part of a program. And I think I think fortunately there's lots more athletes that are are realising its importance, but still still don't have access to the level of support that they probably need in those spaces as well. In to, to answer your other question, I think, I mean, really my the area I was most working first in sports nutrition was more in the communication side of things, so the translation of research and how we're breaking that down and, um, and providing really, really simple messaging. And, and that is actually something that I have pulled on as being really important when I'm dealing with either one-on-one clients or in that team aspect. So we talk about you talk about knowledge and you talk about soft the soft skills. It's the 
in some of these contexts, it's the soft, soft skills of, of communication and building rapport and relationships and, you know, feeling, having people feel as though I'm on your team. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm, I'm part of, I'm part of your, your team to help you. Um, that's, there's, there's some of them, you know, the, the more important skills because the knowledge is there. People can pick up a pick up a book. They can read the research paper themselves, largely, but it's it's being able to to cut through to to bounce ideas around, which is where I largely see myself now. Is let's talk about the problem. Let's let's bounce some ideas around because there's no right or wrong answer. I I really believe when it comes to the human body, there's so much we don't know. And it's the same with food. There's so many components of food. You know, we can we we know we know enough about macronutrients. We know some about micronutrients, but there's still all these other components that we don't understand, and how they interact, and then how they interact in the human body and the human brain. So, a a good dietitian or nutritionist or any practitioner will have that really human element to how they practice and how they're reading the room so to speak or they're picking up on the moods of the person in front of them and and that's the same in a team environment too you've one of the mistakes I think that some that some dietitians or, or nutritionists can make is is feeling as though they've got something really important to impart on a team or, or an individual, but not understanding that that's one thing that they've got going on. So it's really either picking your timing or picking, sometimes there's a better avenue in a team environment. Sometimes, as, and you would know this, Fitzy, you'd have, you have athletes who have really close relationships with perhaps the physio on the team or the S&C on that team but for, for some reason they don't they don't quite you know nutrition might not be where their headspace is at at that time but they might be really focused on working with the physio on something else so in a team environment sometimes it's about picking up on that relationship and going how can I how can I actually use that physio to impart the information that I want to get to that athlete but through them through that trusted relationship so it, it really becomes in a team environment that multidisciplinary approach and and not bringing your ego to the table either just having you know knowing what the outcome is but not not needing it to be yourself putting that forward Absolutely, and I'll, I'll let you know my pet hate for my experience in in team environments here in professional sport in Australia. And I know after spending time in my career playing in Europe as well, I found it very. I found it knowing what I know now about recovery, and since having launched Pillar and, and understanding the absolute non-negotiable element nutrition and sleep have within recovery. I find it very interesting that they are the two elements of recovery that teams with a very high paid roster will leave that to autonomy of the players. There is, seems to be this fascination or almost obsession with strength and conditioning staff to have to monitor every element of the performance, but yet recovery, and particularly when it comes to, and this is what I found interesting, I believe if you looked at the, the elements of recovery, 
we, you've got to look at sleep and nutrition as without a doubt the two biggest building blocks. Everything underneath that, in my opinion, is secondary, important but secondary. So let's put your, your, your gadgets such as your, your Normatec and compression boots, your compression garments for flights. I would even put ice baths, icing, Let's continue on there. We are even pliability and, and foam rolling, physio. I think all of those things are very important, but if, if you but nutrition and sleep are more important. Doesn't matter if you do all those things, if you go in after a game and you haven't slept, everything goes out the window. What I find really interesting, Pip, is how I would come out of a session and there would be a trainer in the ice bathroom with a stopwatch, ensuring that I fulfilled my eight minutes in the, in the, in the ice bath, which I always did, but obviously guys didn't, but yet there was no one standing by the fridge, making sure as a player that was told I needed to put on weight, watching me finish my protein shake after the gym. You know what I mean? I could have skipped the nutrition completely after the biggest day of the week. And I could have gone home. I could have done my eight minute ice bath. And if I wanted to, could not have eaten for three hours, which basically would have blown up the entire day. I find it very interesting that the, the pro, just the priorities of professional sport need to adjust. They need to, they really need to reconsider about where the hierarchy of everything sits and the importance you place. Because if you place importance on it, that teaches young athletes what the importance is and that's where autonomy comes from. But we digress on that, Pip. We can, we, we can talk a lot uh, on that. But I, I think, Pip, for, for this episode, I, I do want to leave it there. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening today. Pip and I, we're going to dive into some information on sleep and recovery, but what we've decided to do is break this podcast up into two. So Pip, again, thank you so much for coming on. Incredible insights to learn about where you came as an athlete and obviously how you've taken um, your learnings from, from athlete, um, your athletic life and obviously then the interest from your mum as, as a GP into, you know, into the world now of, of performance nutrition. You are helping athletes all around the world now with, with your work through the pillar and obviously the work outside you do with that. Um, we all thank you and we're going to dive into a lot of these episodes. But for everyone, thank you again for listening to the podcast. For those listening on, on Apple or Spotify, we would love to a nice positive review if you have learned something about this today so make sure we, we listen to the following episodes because we're going to have pip on shortly but everyone train well and have a good afternoon mm-hmm.